so glad that you're here with us this week. As always, we're upholding you in prayer whenever and wherever you are. As always, be sure to give us a like on Facebook and check us out at www.shumcokc.org. All right, well, wherever and whenever you are, uh, welcome to Southern Hills United Methodist Church. Whether you are on campus or online, I'm glad that you're here to worship with us today. Um, If you're here on campus, then this looks a little bit different to you, but it's not substantially different because we've done this before. If you're worshiping with us virtually, then you wouldn't have noticed any change at all. This is one of the weeks in which I'm not actually physically present on the campus of Southern Hills. In fact, if everything has gone well, and I pray that it has, um, right around the time this service ends, I should be pulling into Oklahoma City together with my wife, Kate, and our oldest daughter, uh, Robin, whom we have spent this weekend moving back home from upstate New York. Robin has been working in the hotel industry. Um, She is transferring down here to Oklahoma City to be closer to us and to be closer to uh, Megan and Chris um, and her grandparents, who all all of us live uh, either in the same neighborhood or very close to one another, um, with the exception of Megan and Chris, whom we just moved out to an off-campus apartment, uh, moved Megan into an off-campus apartment recently. Chris lives down in Norman as well. And so um, we're, uh, we're excited about being able to have more of our family members closer together, Um, and we're excited about the opportunity to introduce Robin to you once she gets settled here, but that's what we're in the process of doing this weekend. I've coveted your prayers um, and enjoyed them. I know you've sent them over the course of this weekend. It has been bitterly cold in Watertown, New York. Um, Watertown is the, the community that is right outside of Fort Drum, which is one of the army posts that I was stationed at. Um, Kate and I, as you are well aware, have three adult children, and they are a yours, mine, and ours. Kate and I both had previous marriages when we met one another, and we had children from those marriages. Robin is my child. Samantha is Kate's child. They are all our children. Megan is ours together from our marriage. And so um, it's a joy to be able to have uh, our family members closer here and um, and a part of what we're doing. So I'm looking forward to introducing Robin to you, but, but Watertown is just very, it's a very cold place. And this week, um, the temperatures predicted for this weekend have been right around zero with wind chills substantially below zero. Just a few days ago, the wind chill in Watertown was negative 28. So no doubt we have been uh, cold this weekend and uh, we're looking forward to getting back here. I know Robin is excited about being in a place that's warmer. So thank you for your prayers. We're excited and we covet those. We welcome them. Um, and we'll be looking forward to, uh, to having the chance to worship with you in person in the next week. All right, so you should have uh, received a text message from me this morning uh, from the church. If, uh, if you got that, then that's going to have a link to a particular study Bible that I prefer when I'm taking a look at the kinds of study Bibles that I want to use. Um, I'm going to preach today in an expository way which means I'm going to ask you to take out your Bibles. Now, if you don't have one, uh, we have some here uh, on campus. There are some Bibles on the table. In fact, uh, the Bible that you're going to find on the table here was among many who were purchased by one of our late church members and gifted to the church. He's gone on to be with Christ. Um, And so it also happens to be the the exact same translation as the study Bible that I use. Um, I'm going to encourage you going forward to go ahead and bring your Bibles and Bring a a highlighter, bring a pen, be ready to take notes in them as I work with you uh, in my way through whatever passage it is that we happen to be talking about. And so 
Um, if you're looking for a Bible, as we get started kind of diving into uh, some of the scriptural story, if you, if you don't have one that you like, um, then if you're a part of our text message list, you will have gotten a text message this morning. That has a link to the exact Bible that I use. It is my favorite translation, and this just so happens to be my favorite version of this translation. The difference between a study Bible and a regular Bible is that um, a study Bible will often include some small bits of commentary written by whatever group has put the Bible together. Uh, the Bible that I use and the one I've sent you a link to is one that was produced by over 40 different, very well-respected uh, denominational scholars from different mainline denominations who collaborated together, Greek scholars, Hebrew scholars, um, scholars in biblical theology, some very well-respected people came together to translate uh, this Bible from the original languages that the Bible is written in, uh, ancient Hebrew or Aramaic and Koine Greek, into the, a more readable, a little bit more modern version of English that is also uh, far more accurate than some of the older English translations, which is one of the reasons that I like it. It combines readability with uh, pretty accurate translations. Um, in some of those instances, and we'll talk about this over the course of the next few years, but in some of those instances, you'll find that English words are not used the same way that they used to be. Perfect is a good example. When you hear me teach about the word perfect, you're going to hear me say that very thing. And so as meanings of words have shifted a little bit over time, it's helpful to have a translation that's a little bit more um, colloquially uh, precise in terms of how we choose to speak today. So I like this Bible because it combines accurate translations and readability. Um, also has some commentary written by those denominational scholars and from time to time includes Wesley's thoughts. John Wesley was the founding Anglican priest of the Methodist movement that later became the Methodist and then the United Methodist Church. And so some of his thoughts from his private journal are interspersed throughout the book. I absolutely love it for that reason. So study Bibles will have those kinds of things and oftentimes they'll have some space to write in them. This one doesn't have a lot of that, but I'm going to encourage you to highlight and write in your Bible as we go through that and learn more about what the scriptures are telling us and how we translate them uh, to better understand how we can be followers of Christ today. So if you're looking for one, that's my favorite. Of course, I believe that the best version of the scriptures for you to use, to, to purchase, is the version that you can understand, the version that makes sense to you. So use the one that makes sense to you. When I teach, I'll teach through some of the different translations. Be become accustomed to bringing your Bible with you to worship, uh, both on Sunday morning and on Wednesday evenings, so that as we're going through those scriptures together, as I'm reading through that and teaching you about it, you'll have the opportunity to follow along together with me. And I want to encourage you to write and take notes in it. You should come and take a look at my Bible sometime. Um, there it is highlighted. There are notes. Things have boxes drawn around them. As I'm working my way through my own study of the scriptures, both for myself and for our congregation, um, and I want to write things in there that are, are meaningful and help to jog my memory, I encourage you to do the same thing about some of the things that you will have learned as we've talked. Kate's grandmother, Carolyn, had a really interesting practice. She was a Christian for a very long time. And in her uh, latter, the latter decades of her life, she became very active in a local church just outside of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. She had this practice of purchasing a Bible. And it would always be in the translation that was, you know, she was easy, able to read easily at that point in her life. And she would take that Bible and she would sit in the teaching. I remember going to the church together with her that she'd been attending. We went a few times. And she would sit there um, in the midst of that teaching 
and uh, write, just take notes, diligently take notes in her Bible, highlight things, take notes. I remember sitting there once with her and she looked at me and said that she absolutely loved being at that church because of the depth of the teaching that came out of the worship services. She said, I learned, I've learned so much not just about my faith, but also about the scriptures as a result of really good, solid teaching coming out of the services. And so um, her practice was that she would follow along in that teaching, right? Um, and she would take notes and she would highlight things. And when her Bible was filled to the brim with notes and underlinings and highlightings, she would put it on her shelf, she would buy a new one, and she would start that process all over. And I've got to tell you that um, after Carolyn had passed on, and we were together with siblings and other family members uh, taking a look at some of the things that she left for us. One of the most precious items we found was that collection of Bibles that she had developed over the years. I would encourage you to do something very much the same thing. You never know whom that might bless in addition to you in the years and in the, the generations to come. Um, I want to encourage you to, to uh, take that, to, to write in it, to uh, consider uh, filling it up with notes as you're, as you're learning uh, about the things that we're going to be studying. We're going to be following the lectionary text. The lectionary typically includes about four readings. We'll study one of them here. Um, if you follow all four readings of the lectionary, then you will get through the Bible in about a three-year period. So we will be doing some of that. We're going to be getting through the, the vast majority of the scriptures in a three-year period. So if you're looking, if you're thinking about that and you're thinking, well, I don't know, you know, I could do something like that, but how long would it take? If you're here and you participate, whether you participate online or on campus um, fairly regularly, it's going to take you about three years, and then we'll tackle it again. You'll hear me say often that um, one of the, the most amazing things about what God does through the scriptures is that every time you study the scriptures, every time you encounter the scriptures in conversation with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is going to teach you something new. So as we do this over the course of the next few years, I think you're going to enjoy, I hope you're going to enjoy the opportunity to learn more about the scriptures, more about what the Holy Spirit is saying to you and to us here and now, and more about who God is calling you to be. So I want to encourage you to do that. Um, I want to encourage you to get used to bringing your Bible, sitting down, taking notes. We're going to have some highlighters over at the welcome desk here on campus. Feel free to pick one up when you come in if you'd like to do that. Uh, we'll make sure to have those ready for you. All right. Today we're going to be talking about 1 Corinthians. Uh, the lectionary text has us right now in the midst of kind of a focus on the spiritual gifts. So last week we talked about that some. A couple of the major points that came out of last week's entrance into the idea of spiritual gifts is that you have them. You are uniquely gifted. In fact, um, the ways in which the Holy Spirit has uniquely gifted you, Paul says there are many gifts but one spirit, the ways in which the Holy Spirit has uniquely gifted you are very intentional. God intended for you to be gifted that way from before you were ever created. Those gifts are also diverse. You are uniquely gifted. The gifts that you have are different from your talents. Talent, uh, gifts are gifts given by the Holy Spirit in the measure according to how the Spirit gives them. And that is a way of saying that God is doing amazing things through you. God is at work through you, through the gifts that you're given, right? Talents are um, skills that we develop over time through hard work and determination and practice. We improve upon them 
Oftentimes, our gifts will complement our talents, or maybe the other way around, our talents will complement our gifts. Our gifts also help us to discern our calling as God gifts us with intentionality so that we will thrive within the environment that we are called to. Your calling is dynamic, not static, right? It changes over time. There is not only one thing you have ever been called to do. You are called to something, probably more than one something, right now, and you will be called in the future as well. Your gifts can help you to discern your calling and directly contribute to what the Holy Spirit is doing in the kingdom through you. The ways in which God is bringing light into the dark places of the world through the gifts that God has given to you. God is at work in the world through you. Those are the spiritual gifts. We also talked about how you are more than your gifts. Last week we talked about how you are more than your gifts. You are more than your calling. You are more than what you accomplish. And that is also by God's design. Sometimes we can get so wrapped up in the great mission that comes with our calling, whatever that may be, right? Whatever it may be right now. Sometimes we can get so wrapped up and so caught up, allow our identity to, to be all consumed by the, our living into the gifts that we're given, feeling like in order to have value, we need to accomplish great things by using the gifts that we've been given together with the Spirit. If we're not careful, it's very easy to put so much of our identity in what we do or do not accomplish that we forget sometimes that God does not love us because of what we do. You are not loved because you are gifted. You are gifted because you are loved. You are not loved because you are called. You are called because you are loved. God does not love you because of what you accomplish through your calling. What God accomplishes through your calling is because God loves you and loves the world, right? So we've entered into this idea about spiritual gifts. Today, we're going to talk about how though we are uniquely gifted, and we are, there are a couple of common pitfalls that the church has had to sidestep throughout our long history. One of them we see here. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth. Corinth, uh, the church in Corinth. Corinth is a city in Greece, right? It actually sits on the Gulf of Corinth. That's just going to be uh, west of the Aegean Sea. It's very near the Mediterranean Sea, uh, kind of the northwest side of Greece. Paul established a church in Corinth during his second missionary journey. And so he's writing to this place. Now, there are some characteristics that the city of Corinth hold in common with the entire culture of Greece. And so as Paul has established a church there, remember that the early way in which the followers of Christ were referred to was first as the way. They referred to themselves as the way. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. In fact, at the end of this passage, Paul is going to talk about how he's going to teach us a better way, right? That's how Christians referred to themselves. But other people referred to them uh, in other ways as well, right? Uh, Christians were referred to as the ecclesia, those who are called out and set apart. In fact, when Christians are first referred to as Christians, they're referred to that way by other people who are using that as a bit of a derogatory term because many people considered them to be a sect or a cult at the time in which they formed. They referred to themselves as the way. They referred to themselves as the ecclesia, Greek word meaning called out. It is the root word of ecclesiastical, which refers to all things church-related. means called out and set apart from, right? So as Paul is establishing this church in Corinth, and the people who are 
coming together to learn to follow Christ. We've always referred to ourselves in the body, and in fact, the, the reference to the idea that we are the body of Christ comes from this passage that we'll read today. And the body of Christ, we've always referred to ourselves as followers of Christ. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we are seeking out Christ to follow. Though We're going to follow the teachings of Christ, we're going to follow the example of Christ, and we use that to convey the idea that we're living into the example that was set for us and living into the teachings that are offered to us by Christ, right? We've always referred to ourselves as followers of Christ. Well, as Paul is establishing this church and beginning to teach people about what Christ taught when Christ walked the earth, remember this is 50 AD, so that's going to be about 17 years after Jesus is crucified and resurrected in a sense. So there's a little bit of time that's passed, right? Paul is teaching. Paul's teaching about what Christ taught. And as Paul is doing that, the people of Corinth are being confronted with something that has always been a reality for the followers of Christ. There is always, no matter what area we find ourselves in, no matter what geographic area or era of time or culture we find ourselves in, there has always been a need for us to pull back and take a a look at the culture in which we find ourselves. Because there are parts of the culture in which we find ourselves that don't match up with the example of Christ, right? Um, Inequality and racism and uh, failing to love one another in the same way that Christ loves us in whatever way that works itself out in the culture that we're in, those things do not um, align with the example and the teachings of Christ. And so uh, every culture, this is no different for us than it was for Corinth, has, had, has been filled by, by Christians who were voluntarily following Christ and as a result of that have to do some self-reflection and some deconstruction in their own lives, right? When I sit down and have a live stream about the deconstruction and the reconstruction of Christianity, I'm going to be doing that less with Christianity and more about uh, what you have believed or been taught about Christianity that may not line up with the teachings of Jesus Christ. We'll be doing less deconstruction of Christianity and more deconstruction of what you've been taught to believe about Christianity, and that'll be different for each and every one of us. Every believer, every follower has had to do that. What is it about the, the, the normative culture in which I've been raised, in which I live, that does not follow or match up with or reflect the teachings of Jesus Christ. A good rule for that, that I'm going to tell you again and again and again, a quick rule, a way to gauge that is that Christ teaches us that in order to be followers of Christ, we are transformed by, we share the love of Christ. Um, They will know, Jesus says, that you are my followers by the way that you love other people. What is the love of Christ? We then have to ask that question, right? If that's the truth, if people are going to know I'm a follower of Christ because I love in the example provided to me by Christ, then I should be asking myself, how does Christ love? My answer to that is proactively, sacrificially, and unconditionally. And I always tell you to study the scriptures yourself and come to your conclusions by yourself. In my study of the scriptures, I believe that the love of Christ is proactive, sacrificial, and unconditional. A quick rule of thumb, if my behaviors in the world as a result of the culture I live in, was raised in, do not reflect the proactive and sacrificial and unconditional love of Christ, then I have some personal deconstruction to do. What do I need to change and get rid of? And what do I need to build in its place on the foundation? that's being laid right now, which is my relationship with God in Christ. Corinth was doing the same thing. And some of the normative behaviors there 
were causing difficulty and disruption in the early and growing church that had been planted there. That's been no different for Christians either. As we're in varying stages of deconstructing that personal deconstruction for ourselves, what is it about my life that doesn't match up with the proactive, sacrificial, unconditional love of Christ? As we're doing that, some of our normative cultural practices always seep into the church. That's just a normal thing. We're all at different points on our journey of spiritual growth, which means that we're all prone to bring different normative practices from our culture into our community of faith, oftentimes without even knowing that there's a potential for those things to be unhealthy. There are several things that are happening here in Corinth. Um, some of them are uh, things like uh, people where ha- we're having sexual relationships with very close relatives, and Paul will speak against that, right? In this passage, one of the things that Paul is addressing that is a normative part of the culture in Corinth is the propensity for social elitism, social stratification, to be a a major cultural factor that often determined success and survival in life. There's a huge social stratification in Corinth. Uh, Much of the rest of of Greece is not substantially different from that. But that's working itself out in this early church. People are not being kind to other people, particularly in the uh, the act of communion. People are not, the the more elite people are taking places of greater honor. Uh, The people who are more elite in society are often eating together. Early communion was just a meal, which is why that is the version of communion that we do out in Stockyard City. We don't bring bread and we don't bring uh, grape juice, fermented grape juice out there. Uh, or unfermented grape juice. We don't bring that out into the field and serve communion with bread and grape juice because the first version of communion was a meal held together around a table. The followers of Christ got together and we ate a meal and then we learned about what Christ had to teach us. Um, the, the practice of worshiping on the first day of the week and having communion that, that during that time is just our modern version of the fact that the early followers of Christ got together at the first part of their week and had a meal together, met and ate together around that holy communion during which they set their focus on the teachings of Christ so that the first thing they would do in the course of any given week was to focus on Christ. So as Paul is writing to Corinth, Paul is writing in particular into this sense of elitism and social stratification. Those people who are more privileged than other people were lording it over those who were less privileged than other people. Those who had more money, more position, more status, more power, better family upbringings, better family connections were lording it over those who didn't. And this is in the midst of a religious faith that doesn't see that stratification, doesn't teach that that kind of stratification is okay. Paul has said in Galatians, there's no longer Jew nor Greek or slave nor free or male nor female. What does he mean by that? The stratifications that once defined who you were and how you related to one another, those stratifications are no longer a part of the kingdom of heaven. If you're going to be a follower of Christ, he says, you're not going to be living into those kind of social stratifications. That's going to be a major cultural shift. How do I live in a world that is defined that way if I'm learning that the the loving example of Christ conflicts with that kind of an idea? That's what's happening in Corinth, and Paul is going to write into the midst of that. One of the expressions of that is that they have begun to teach that the gift of speaking in tongues is the most important of the gifts. And therefore, everybody who doesn't have that has a gift of lesser value 
and therefore lesser standing in the community. Uh, it was around 100 years ago or so, um, give or take, there was a revival. Uh, at the time, it was referred to as a renewal. It would come to be called the Pentecostal renewal. It happened in, in uh, Sousa Street in a Methodist church. And the result of that revival was kind of a, a, a fresh focus on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Those who participated in it had come to believe that um, the church in general had moved away from talking about the spiritual gifts, focusing on the spiritual gifts. And so they tried to reignite this theology of the spiritual gifts. Every denomination has something of value to bring to the larger Christian community, right? Um, the United Methodist Church has an unsurpassed theology of grace, and it's part of what we bring to the larger Christian table. We hold many things in common with our Christian sisters and our Christian brothers in spite of the fact that sometimes it's easy to look at denominational differences in the Christian church and only focus on the things that we disagree about. There are naturally going to be some things that Christians disagree about, again, because we're all at different places in our spiritual growth process. But also, every denomination brings a theology of value to the larger Christian conversation. The United Methodist Church, again, has a theology of grace. The Southern Baptist Convention, a theology of God's sovereignty. Do we bring some things to the table that we probably should not be bringing to the table that are less healthy? Of course we do. We're churches that are organizations made up of people who are trying to get to know God better, and we're being healed and transformed along that journey as well. Paul is going to talk about this hierarchy of gifts because Corinth has started to teach that one gift matters more than the other. The Pentecostal renewal would end up taking that approach as well, which is why that if you get on denominational websites that would fall under the banner of Pentecostalism, Assemblies of God might be one of them, you'll find that they say things like being able to speak in tongues is necessary evidence of salvation. One of the reasons we'll be deconstructing some of the things that you've been taught about Christianity is to determine whether or not teachings like that are in line with the scriptures and in line with who Christ is. That theology has substantially impacted people over time, and it was substantially impacting people in Corinth. If you were not given the gift of speaking in tongues, you were less important than those who could. I remember sitting in my office in Stroud, Oklahoma, and uh, a woman walked in. She and her husband had transferred into our church from another place and another denomination. And she said, hey, pastor, I need to talk to you. And I said, okay, that's great. She said, um, something that I, I've been struggling with something my whole life. She was probably in her 70s at this point. And I said, I said, okay, what's going on? She said, well, I grew up in a Pentecostal church. And she said, in the church that I grew up in, um, you know, they believed that you had to speak in tongues in order to prove that you were saved. And I said, oh, that's common, you know, for that denomination. And she said, in the church I grew up in, the people who were able to speak in tongues got to sit in one section, and the people who hadn't yet spoken in tongues had to sit in the other section. And she said, try as I, try, try as I did, I was never able to speak in tongues. She said, I don't know why God didn't give me that gift. And she said, here I am in my 70s, and I'm contemplating um, passing on in sometime um, in the future. And she said, I've been thinking more and more about that the older that I've gotten. And she said, I'm, I'm starting to be really concerned. What if I never speak in tongues? Does that mean that I'm not going to get to go to where God is, that, I, that, that I'm not going to get to go to heaven, that I'm going to go to hell, that I'm not going to be able to be with God? And I said, no, 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 no. I said, that teaching is a misrepresentation of what the scriptures actually say and of what Christ taught. 
That led to a larger conversation that spanned several days, the end of which found uh, her living into a, a much more comfortable relationship, not only with uh, God, but together with the church because she was less afraid that she was going to go to hell because she didn't get this particular gift. Paul's going to address that. We don't all get the same gifts. And Paul says the hierarchy that you're teaching about these gifts would be backwards anyway if there were a hierarchy. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to um, ask you to follow along with me together in your, your Bible. Take it out. Uh, if you have one with you, if not, open one up on the tables that are, that are uh, here on campus. Uh, take notes, highlight things. We're going to work our way through what Paul teaches about the intentional diversity that is a part of the body of Christ by God's design. The scriptures are holy, and before we consider them, we should pray. Let's do that. God, we're grateful for the intentionality of your design, an intentionality that, by its very nature, has led to the creation of diverse peoples with diverse gifts and diverse beliefs and diverse goals and diverse callings and diverse versions of self-expressions that all contribute to the uh, beautiful tapestry of creation that you've had in mind from the very, the very beginning, the kind of a tapestry, the kind of, uh, of art, God, that can only be painted by the hand of a master painter who can see how the diversity of the many colors and differences with which you've created our souls come together to create a beautiful experience of the creation that you've had in mind from before we were ever here. And so, God, today we pray that as we work our way through the Scriptures, that the lessons of the past might work their way down to us today in a way that helps us to better understand who you're calling us to be in the future. God, we're grateful for the lessons that have been left for us and for the, the constant dialogue with the Holy Spirit that allows us to interpret those lessons today and now in real time so that we can step into the people that you will call us to be. Open our hearts. God, open our minds. Open our spirits that we might hear what you'd say to us today. Amen. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting with verse 12, which is right where we picked, uh, right where we left off last week. Paul is writing about the spiritual gifts. Paul writes, Christ is just like the human body. A body is a unit and it has many parts. There is unity, yes, but there is unity because of the diversity. God intentionally made us to be a diverse body. And while it is so easy to fall into the trap of believing that because the, the, in the midst of that diversity, that because somebody is different from me, that what they do and who they are is less important and of less value than me, that trap is easy to fall into. Paul says that's not true. Just because, if you're a part of, he's going to use this metaphor of the body, just because you're an eye doesn't mean you don't need a hand. We can easily fall into the trap of saying, well, I'm an eye. What do I need a hand to see for? And Paul would respond, I'm paraphrasing, by saying you don't need a hand to see. But if you don't have a hand, all you're going to be doing is sitting around and looking at things without doing anything. We need all of the parts of the body in order to be able to live into the beauty of God's intentional creation has many parts, and all the parts of the body are one body, even though there are many. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body, right? Whether Jew or Greek or slave or free, 
We were all baptized by, by one spirit, by the same spirit. There was not a different spirit. It's not like um, some people got baptized into uh, a more powerful or more prominent spirit, right? So the gifts they get from that spirit are different than the gifts that the people who got baptized into a less prominent spirit uh, would have gotten. Paul says, no, there's one spirit. There's one God. We were all baptized into the same spirit, right? Whether you're Jew or Greek or slave or free, no matter your cultural difference, no matter your social stratification, we were baptized into the same spirit. We're baptized into the same discipleship. There aren't stratifications in our discipleship process. There are not stratifications in our practice of the faith. There are not stratifications in the body of Christ as a result of your, uh, your social stratification, your social distinctions in the place where you live, which means that whether you make more money or less money, you have uh, uh, more prominence or less prominence. No matter your cultural affiliation, one culture is not more important to God than another culture is. Paul says when we get baptized into the body of Christ, those same things that cause social distinctions amongst you, they don't cause those distinctions in the body of Christ. Certainly the body isn't one part, but many. Verse 15, if the foot says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, does that mean it's not a part of the body? If the ear says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not an eye, does that mean it's not a part of the body? If the whole, part, if the whole body were an eye, what would happen to the hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, what would happen to the sense of smell? So just because uh, the, the, Paul's talking about this, how this idea of elitism that's worked its way into the church can cause people to feel less than. Well, if this part of the body is more important than, than me, if I'm not that part of the body, I don't matter as much. Paul's saying, no, that's not the case. Every part of the body has an important function. And that important function is necessary for the entirety of the body to be whole and healthy. It doesn't matter, Paul says, how, uh, what, what our social stratifications and distinctions tell us. Paul says, don't bring that here because it doesn't apply to how we do what we do as who we do. I'm not part of the body because I'm not an eye. Does that mean it's not part of the body? Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, what would happen to the hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, what would happen to the sense of smell? But as it is, God has placed each one of the parts in the body just like he wanted. The diversity in the body is intentional. Listen to that. That means that the way that you were created, the way that I was created, the way that we were, that was intentional. God intentionally created us. The scriptures also say that God knew every single hair on your head before you were ever made. You were intentionally and fearfully, translate that to uh, meaningfully, wonderfully, lovingly, caringly. You were intentionally designed by a God who has loved you from before you existed. What does that mean? Your unique creation is intentional, intentionally designed by God to fit into the beauty of the tapestry that happens when all of us in our unique diversity come together to form a unified whole. Verse 18, but as it is, God has placed each one of the parts of the body just like he wanted. If all were one in the same body part, what would happen to the body? But as it is, there are many parts but one body. So the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or in turn, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. If the eye said to the hand, just like we talked about a minute ago, well, what is a hand? Why do I need a hand in order to be able to see? The answer is you don't. But without a hand, 
without feet, without legs, without the other parts of the body. The only thing you do is what you do. And there's nothing else that happens that would happen if the rest of the body and all of its uniqueness came together in a whole and healthy way. I don't want to just see things. I want to do things. Verse 21, so the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you, or in turn, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. Instead, the parts of the body that people think are the weakest are the most necessary. Paul is saying, turn what you've been, what you've been uh, teaching and believing and living into here in Corinth, turn that on its head. Jesus said, the last will be first and the first will be last. Paul says the things that we think are the weakest, uh, let's get there and see what he says. Uh, I don't need you. Instead, uh, verse 22, instead the parts of the body that people think are the weakest are the most necessary. The parts of the body that we think are less honorable, we honor the most. The parts of our body that are not presentable are the ones that are given the most dignity. The things you've been thinking that, that are a result of this elitism and stratification, Paul says that's not how the kingdom of heaven works. It's not how the body of Christ works. We are all of equal value. And beyond that, Paul said, we can't be whole. We can't be healthy without one another. Listen to that. We cannot be whole. We cannot be healthy without each other. Paul says that's intentional. It's by design. Not one of us is everything that the world needs. Not one of us is everything that's needed in the places we've been planted. And not one of us alone, no person is an island, not one of us alone has within us everything that we need to be happy and healthy and whole, especially, Paul says, in this context, relationally. We need one another in all of our diversity. The parts of our body, verse 24, that are presentable don't need this. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the part with less honor. So that there won't be, listen to this, there won't be division in the body. And so the parts might have mutual concern for each other. It, it does nothing healthy for us to look at somebody who does something differently, who has a different set of gifts, who, does, who expresses uh, God, who God is in them in a different way. It does nothing for us to look at those people and say that they have less value to criticize them and judge them because they are not who we are. They're not supposed to be who I am. You're not supposed to be who I am. I'm not supposed to be who you are. We have different gifts. We have different versions, different ways of expressing the love that God is even now healing and transforming us with, the different ways of expressing the beauty with which God intentionally designed you into the world. That is intentional. It is by design. We are, Paul says nothing good or healthy comes from either comparing ourselves to people who are different from us or judging them for not being the same as us, both of which are, are pitfalls that are easy to stumble into. So that we might have mutual concern for each other. Care and concern for those who are one with us. Whose diversity makes us a healthier whole. If one part suffers, all of the parts suffer with it. And if one part gets the glory, all of the parts celebrate with it. There's a distinction there. Paul doesn't say if one of the parts suffers, the other parts are sad for it. Paul says the other parts suffer with it. If a part of the body is suffering, even if that part of the body is a different part of the body from you, then we suffer together with that part of the body. We share in that suffering. 
That is both something that is unavoidable. We will suffer together because we care about the people who are a part of um, the body of Christ, who are part of the body that we are a part of. We care about one another. It's also an admonition. Intentionally enter into the suffering of the other people who are part of the body together with you because when more of us enter into the suffering of a part of our body, it makes that suffering uh, more bearable for the part of the body that is really experiencing it. Those who have ears, Christ might say, let them hear. But then Paul says something different. He doesn't say, um, if one part gets the glory, all the other parts are glorified too. He doesn't say that. He said, if one part gets the glory, all the other parts celebrate with it. When something good happens in, when, with someone who is different from me, who's a part of the group I'm a part of, I am just as happy with them. Not jealous, but just as happy for them as I would be if that happened for me or for anybody else. I don't look at them and say, why is this good thing happening to you and not happening to me? Paul says, that's not healthy and nothing good comes from that. Instead, living into a healthier way of life, which is a better way than the way in which the the culture, Paul says, of Corinth is teaching you to live. There's a better way to do this. He's going to say that in a minute. Just taught you a better way. Part of the better way to do that is to, instead of jealousy, choosing to love and celebrate those who are experiencing success, who are being glorified because of whatever it is that God is doing in and through them. Paul says celebrate with them. And the more you celebrate with people, instead of being jealous with people, the closer and more unity the body will have, the happier you will be, and the more mutually supportive your relationships will be. You are the body of Christ and parts of each other. You are connected to one another. We are connected to one another. In the church, God has appointed, here we go, first apostles. This is in direct challenge of what Corinth is teaching about how speaking in tongues is the most important gift. So Paul's going to say not only is that a a bad ideology, but even if you were going to rank them, you're getting everything backwards. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Then miracles, then gifts of healing, and then the ability to help others or leadership skills. Yours may say administration, but that actually is a translation of a word that means something more like guidance. Different kinds of tongues comes last. Paul is saying... You're getting the teachings wrong here. We're not actually ranking one another, but in terms, he says, of the efficacy of the body, you would be getting it wrong if we were trying to. The propensity that we have to get things wrong when we choose to teach and live into the teachings of Christ apart from dialogue with the Holy Spirit is high. But when we sit and learn at the feet of Christ, reading the scriptures in conversation with the Holy Spirit, being in dialogue with one another in conversation with the Holy Spirit. This is why you should consider coming to the gathering on Wednesday night. You'll be surprised at what you get out of being in dialogue with others and the Holy Spirit, just like you'll be surprised at what you get when you're in dialogue with the Holy Spirit while reading the scriptures. What God does within us is profound, not just the knowledge that is imparted, but the healing that takes place. All are not apostles. Are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All don't perform miracles, do they? All don't have gifts of healing, do they? All don't speak in different tongues, do they? That is the key there. Because they've been saying everybody has to speak in tongues in order to give evidence of salvation, which, you know, rears its head again in the Pentecostal renewal that happened 100-ish years ago, right? Paul is saying, ah, no, all don't do all the gifts, do they? All also don't speak in tongues. Stop telling people that they need to. We are, we are uh, all baptized into the same spirit, and that spirit, we just learned recently, gives out gifts, and in the last week's passage, gives out gifts 
according to the measure that the Spirit has determined and according to the number of gifts that the Spirit has determined. What does that mean? What is Paul saying? We don't all get the same gifts, and that is by design. So Paul is saying, stop telling everybody that they have to have this gift. They don't. And stop telling people that this gift is more important than the others, creating a stratification that's not a part of the kingdom of heaven. All don't interpret, do they? And you do this. Use your ambition to try to get the greater gifts. He's talking about the gifts that um, have that type of efficacy that builds up the body of Christ. And I'm going to show you an even better way. You are uniquely gifted. You're uniquely gifted. You are more than your gifts. And you are also intentionally, wonderfully, fearfully, beautifully made by a God who designed your uniqueness into you when God was lovingly figuring out who you were going to be before you were ever made. You are not the same as other people, and that is by God's design. Do not call, uh, God says at one point, don't call unclean the things that I have made clean. Don't call ugly, let me translate that in some other ways, don't call ugly the things that I have created as beautiful. Don't tell me that, the, that what I created intentionally is some kind of an accident. You were intentionally, uniquely, fearfully, beautifully, and wonderfully made. The uniqueness that is inherent to who you are is designed by the God who created you. And it is that uniqueness, that uniqueness in the gifts that you're given, in the ways in which um, the proactive, sacrificial, and unconditional love of God that is healing you also works through you, and the ways in which you express that love into the world is unique and different, and that is by God's design. It's God's doing. It's God's action, and that uniqueness, when you live into it, listen to this because you may need to hear this today, when you live into the uniqueness that God designed into you, not only is your life more fulfilling, but you help the body of Christ, all of us, to be a more beautiful whole to be a healthier whole, all because you are who God called you to be. Would you pray with me? God, we are grateful for the gifts of the Spirit. We're grateful also for the intentional diversity that is inherent to the unique nature of a unified body of Christ. We are grateful, God, for the fact that you intentionally designed us to be unique, to be diverse, to be different. And we're grateful, God, that in the midst of those differences, you remind us that it is the sum total of those differences that come together in a healthy way that help us to be a healthy whole. Being a part of the world, creation in community in a healthy way. And so I pray for those who have been told that their differences were an accident, that you did not intentionally, lovingly create them. I pray for those who've spent a lifetime hearing that they are of less value, less importance, and less worth. I pray for the moments in which the social and cultural stratifications of a world or a culture that doesn't often or always reflect your proactive, sacrificial, and unconditional love for those moments when that culture 
infiltrates the culture of the kingdom because our, our kingdom, the king, your body of Christ here is made up of those of us who are at different points on our spiritual growth journey. God, I pray that you would help us to continue to grow. But as we do, as we take another step, God, I pray that as we stay, take steps closer to you, that you would help us also to take another step closer to embracing the person that you made us to be, that you would help us to take one step closer toward one another, bringing the unique and diverse nature of who we are together into a unified body and unified whole. God, we give you thanks. I give you thanks. For those that you have intentionally, lovingly, fearfully, wonderfully, and beautifully made. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Be sure to tune in next week.